together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Code pink for freedom. Code pink for peace. Code pink to hunger. Emma's Revolution, and I'm Marcy Winograd, coordinator of Code Pink Congress, a campaign to mobilize congressional support for a new progressive foreign policy and demilitarization at home, too. Thank you for tuning in to Code Pink Radio, broadcast on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., also on Spotify and iTunes. Code Pink is a women's-led anti-war organization. Please join our campaigns, women, men, all of us, at CodePink.org. Today, we revisit a recent Code Pink Congress program, From COP26 to the Arctic, with Bernadette Dimientev, Executive Director of the Gwich'in Steering Committee in Alaska, sharing the indigenous nation's victories in convincing banks not to loan money for oil drilling on ancestral lands. We also feature Boston University professor Dr. Nita Crawford on the importance of avoiding the term national security threat when talking about the climate crisis. Why? Because those words, national security threat, validate further U.S. military aggression and a more militarized border. Next, we feature Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans, Back from Glasgow, Scotland, where she marched in the street with 100,000 activists demanding climate justice, reparations for the global south, and inclusion of military emissions in U.N. climate agreements. Like the other U.N. climate agreements, the COP26 did not mandate the Pentagon report its carbon emissions. But there is growing chorus. There is a growing chorus in Congress and in the street to hold the military accountable. More on that later in our show. First, we turn to the Arctic. President Biden signed an executive order imposing a moratorium on oil and gas drilling in the Arctic refuge. But an executive order can be reversed by the next president. We need legislation, not just an executive order. At Code Pink, we are supporting Senator Markey's bill, S-282, S-282, to protect the Arctic refuge. And we urge you to Ask your U.S. Senators to co-sponsor S-282. Alaska is on the front lines of the climate crisis, as you'll hear in these excerpts from Code Pink Congress. We are so uh, honored and thrilled to have with us tonight Bernadette Dementif. Bernadette is from Fort Yukon, Alaska. She is the executive director of the Gwich'in Steering Committee, representing an indigenous nation formed in 1988 to protect their sacred lands in the Arctic refuge. As executive director, Bernadette coordinates the activities of the Gwich'in Steering Committee to protect the porcupine caribou herd calving grounds, their sacred land and the Gwich'in way of life. Bernadette is a seasoned speaker, organizer and leader who educates and informs all audiences about the critical need to protect not her homeland, not just from the oil drilling, which we hear a lot about the threat, but also from the impacts of the climate crisis. 
In addition to all that, Bernadette is the mother of five children and grandmother of six beautiful grandchildren. She takes her position as executive director very seriously and says it has transformed her life to better serve her people. Bernadette views her role as sacred to pass down her knowledge of the land as she continues to learn from elders and carry this knowledge closely. Welcome Bernadette Dimientev to Code Pink Congress. Thank for having me. Um, I just like to recognize that I'm on the Lower Tanana Dene people's ancestral homelands. Dringwinzi, Shorji, Bernadette Dementif Oji, Duchaja Akutsan Eastley, Shahan Berifit Oji, Shiti Bernard Hornsby Oji. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be here. I kind of was just busy. It's been a crazy chaotic day for me, but. Um, yeah, I worked for the Gwich'in Steering Committee off and on, but as Gwich'in people, um, you know, this is not work for us. Um, protecting this area is very personal. Um, and, uh, well, let me back up. Um, you know, the first gathering that was held in over 150 years was in 1988. And it was um, called upon by two um, which in elders from the Vantet, which in Vantet, which in people of the lakes. And um, they called upon it because of the threat to the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Everyone else knows it as the Arctic Refuge, Anwar, but to us, it's called Ijikwetsan Gondai Gwotlit, the sacred place where life begins. And we didn't only start um, protecting this area 30 years ago, we've always protected it. Um, it is so sacred to us that we do not step foot there. When this is the area, um, our creation story tells us that there was a time we were able to communicate with the caribou and we made a vow to protect each other. And for thousands of years, for over 40,000 years, we migrated alongside the caribou, always falling short from entering into the Calvin grounds. This is their safety net. This is where they've been going for millions of years. And right now, since Alaska is completely open of, um, in the northern part of oil and gas development, there's nowhere else for them to go. Um, you know, there's birds that, from seven different continents that migrate there. Um, even the whales, you know, they go all the way um, around and come back to give birth. Uh, um, the food that grows there at that exact precise time of year is very critical for the mother and calf to regain their, um, their health. And right now, you know, climate change is impacting Alaska two times, almost three times faster than the rest of the world. And like, we don't only feel attacked by our government, our former, the former administration, but we also feel attacked by climate change. We literally have 33 coastal communities eroding into the ocean. We have thousands of, um, thousands of dead fish in our rivers and our lakes. It was unbelievable. Um, then there is, 
dead birds literally falling from the sky from starvation. And, and, and we have an elected leadership that refuses to acknowledge any of that. This is Betty in the background. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, but the porcupine caribou herd is uh, very healthy in numbers and they always bring that up. They're healthy in numbers, but that's because we've, I feel it's because we've been protecting such, such a sensitive place for them. Um, Alaska is not an oil state. Alaska is an oil dependent state, but you know, there's more to my home than just oil. And, you know, I'm really tired of people always using that. Um, we had record breaking fires. I couldn't come out of my home for three days. We were surrounded by fire. And, you know, only by the grace of creator that we're still, you know, everybody stayed safe, but I couldn't even see 50 feet in front of me. It was, um, these last few years has been really scary. So we have ticks, something that I never even knew existed until like two years ago. <laughs> and I mean, do you guys know what there are? There's these little nasty little critters um, that get on your animals. We have those. We've never had those before. And so, you know, when this happens, you know, a lot of our lakes are drying up and our rivers. Um, I went out hunting and I noticed that a lot of our, the Yukon River, is just the trees are just falling in and I didn't even recognize I didn't even recognize the way home so you know we're not asking for anything um we're just simply asking to be left alone to continue to live and thrive off the land that creator blessed us with we're not asking for jobs our offices our schools we're just we want to continue to live. It may be a harder way. I know a lot of people might find that hard to believe that we want to go out. Our grocery store is our land, but it's the way we want to live. It's, it's the way we've always survived. And that's our survival. We are interconnected to our land, to our water and to our animals. And we will stand up to anyone who seeks to destroy or disturb them, especially the, um, the sacred Arctic refuge, the coastal plain. It's it's gonna it's going to affect all of us. You know, Alaska may be way up here, but um, what happens up here will happen where you are. And I know everyone is ground zero all over, and it's heartbreaking to see you know all across the country, all across the world, just all the negative impacts that are happening to all of our people. But, you know, our people are always the, the forefront of almost every devastation. And it's hard to um, try to explain to people that will never understand our way of life that we matter. And that, like, for instance, I went to New York and that's like concrete, just nothing but concrete. And, I have to have dirt, I have to have land, I have to have trees. I, that's like therapy for me. And, you know, and I respect that they want to live there. 
and I think that we deserve that same respect. So in 2017, Trump's administration opened our sacred lands to oil and gas development. And, um, you know, it was, it was hard to come back and, you know, tell my people that, you know, we, we thought we were going to get protected by Obama, but instead I had to come back and tell them, get ready, we have a battle ahead of us. And so um, it's been really rough. It's been a really rough four years. I'm, I'm really grateful that we have someone in there that has been stating from the very beginning that he wants the Arctic refuge protected. This is not just about environmental, our, this is about our human rights. Um, I'm not an activist and I'm not an environmentalist. I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. And I didn't come looking for a fight. I didn't, I'm just standing up for what is rightfully our way of life. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we have an administration that is um, actually respecting, you know, some of our, um, our ways that we, but there's still, it's, this is not just a which in issue. This is an everybody issue. Climate change, don't care what color you are, don't care if you're black, white, brown, don't care if you're rich or poor. We are all going to be negatively impacted. And it's time that we start sticking our differences aside and come together and um, start working together, especially if we love our children. We need to, we need to do better. And if we don't have a government that supports that, then we need to do it together because we're stronger together. Um, I just want to, you know, share that every two years, the Gwich'in Nation, it it's consists of Alaska and Canada. Uh, they stuck the border right in the middle of our homelands. We come together to reaffirm our commitment to protect the Jikots and Gwendai Gwotlit. And um, we haven't had that because of the, um, the COVID that's been passing around. And it's impacting a lot of our communities right now up here. We have a really high um, rate of COVID patients. And um, it just, it's hard. It's hard to see the world as it is now and wondering if it's gonna stay like this for you know, the rest of the time <laughs> because climate change ain't slowing down. You can't stop it. I mean, we can do stuff to prevent it, to you know, slow it down, prepare our children, but it's here and um, it's time we accept that. I'm a strong believer in the power of prayer. Um, I just hope that we can find a way to unite and, you know, save Mother Earth, um, save what we have left. Where, yeah. Anyways, I hope I covered everything. I thank you so much, Bernadette. It's so moving to listen to you, uh, and. You know, we 
we're you know, like you said, we're all in this together. I just had a couple of questions, and I and I don't I don't know what your schedule is tonight. Maybe you can. I hope you can stay with us. Uh, others will have more questions after we hear from the other speakers. But you know, I know that uh, Biden imposed with, through executive order a temporary moratorium on oil and gas drilling in the Arctic. Do you find that your uh, senators, your U.S. senators from Alaska, are advocates for you? Uh, as Republicans? How does that work? Absolutely not. Um, they do not interact with the indigenous people up here. Um, when voting comes around, they do. I'm just being honest. I'm trying to choose my words carefully so I'm not being disrespectful in any way. You know, our elders told us to three directions is go out and tell the world we are here to work in a good way and not to compromise our position. So um, that do it in a good way is very simple sentence, but when you're up against so much dishonesty and misleading statements from our own elected leadership, it's not always easy, but um, I try. Uh, they have been, uh, Murkowski's father, uh, who was in her seat um, prior to her, being um, senator, he always tried to have it opened. Um, it, this is the like the last remaining five percent up here. You know, the, this is the rest of, it, of on this side of Alaska is open, and all the caribou herds that are in that area have declined. One of them have declined fifty cent, fifty seven percent since two thousand and ten. They can tell us that our food security and our way of life will not be impacted, not can we see different. So we have been up against our own administration, Alaska um, administration, going down, having to ask other senators for help because ours refused to listen. Oh, many challenges ahead. Thank you so much, Bernadette. Great honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Yes. Okay, our next guest is Professor Nita Crawford. Hania, uh, if you're here yeah. with us, uh, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, thank you so much for inspiring us, Bernadette, um, with your words of wisdom. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce uh, Professor uh, Nita Crawford, uh, who is a professor and chair of political science at Boston University and co-director of the Cost of War Project which has documented the impact of militarism um, on climate. Uh, Professor Crawford is the author of Accountability for Killing, Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars. And she is also the author of two books, Soviet Military Aircraft and Argument and Change in World Politics, named Best Book in International History and Politics by the American Political Science Association. Professor Crawford has served on the governing board of academic council of the United Nations system and on the governing council of the American Political Science Association. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Professor. Please take it away. Hey, thank you. It's, um, I'm happy to be with you. I'll just say that I have another book called Accountability for Killing, looking at collateral damage in America's post 9-11 wars. Um, uh, which started me on another path, looking at the treatment of civilians in 
all U.S. wars from the colonial era to the present. Um, you know, I, I just want to say maybe three things today about my current project on military emissions and uh, what I found at COP. Uh, first of all, I went to the Conference of the Parties to meet, meet with some people who were working on what was called the military emissions gap by this group. And they started a website to try to understand um, and explain to people the gap between the voluntary reporting of military greenhouse gas emissions and what we really need to know, which is uh, the total emissions, the entire uh, military blueprint of greenhouse gas emissions. So they've got this website. You can find it by Googling the military emissions gap or militaryemissions.org. And it's a good start. Uh, I've also myself calculated US military emissions and, and tried to um, highlight the um, Department of Energy statement about those emissions. And so what I wanna do is just sort of give a, a, an overview of uh, US military emissions and um, say what maybe what this means. Okay, so in 2020, the United States military emitted 51 million metric tons in scope one and scope two, that is direct um, emissions themselves, or um, by uh, purchasing power from another entity like a local uh, power company. So that's 51 million metric tons, which is greater than the emissions of many countries in the world, right? And um, it is the United States military, the largest energy consumer in the United States, the single largest energy consumer. It is um, the single uh, largest fuel user, fossil fuel user in the United States. And in fact, I, I think in the world. Now, well, what does that mean? Um, it means that, uh, it's a place that's ripe for reduction. Um, and I think that the military will tell you that they've made great progress in uh, reducing their emissions. And in fact, they have reduced their emissions by about 50% since 1991. So going from about 109 million metric tons annually in 1991 to about 51 million metric tons today. So that's that's amazing and it's wonderful and they should be lauded for all that progress. Um, now that occurred in the context of the end of the Cold War where uh, many military bases were closed. Uh, there were fewer exercises and at the same time the military was getting off coal, moving away from coal. Of course, they're still the only um, federal agency that burns coal, but that's another matter. Um, now they're basically trying to convince us that they're a lean green fighting machine that what they're going to do uh, is continue to be a lean green fighting machine and you don't have to really rethink the missions of the military in other words the fact that we spend about uh, a quarter of our fuel and um, about 30 percent of emissions i'm estimating in central command need not, they would argue, be rethought um, because the United States is using less fuel 
um, overall and transitioning, no, we, we still need to be there. And in fact, we need to increase our presence in Asia, pivoting, swerving, swiveling, moving to defend um, in US interests in Asia and the Pacific. So all of what it, it does is vital. Okay, so that's the first thing that they're doing. They're saying that they're, they're virtuous in, in the sense that they're reducing. And others are arguing that, in fact, the United States military should be uh, a leader in innovation. And it is a leader in innovation and that, and that we should depend on them. Uh, I think Michael Clare makes this argument, um, and so does Bill McKibben, um, to think through problems that people are unwilling to think through. Okay, um, the second part of this is the argument that climate change caused conflict and war is coming to a neighborhood near you. And this is the argument that I'm just phrasing it very bluntly because I only have a few minutes left here, that um, because people will be in great distress, there'll be uh, massive migration, that um, there'll be conflict over resources that may escalate into war, we should be prepared for climate change caused conflict escalating. And uh, so therefore we have to uh, you know, prepare the, the walls, rely on the moats, um, the Atlantic and the Pacific as our moats, pull up the drawbridge, and uh, prepare to defend the United States. And, and in fact, there's no reason to decrease the military budget. In fact, the need is um, to increase efforts in homeland security. So this is the um, so-called lifeboat um, approach. You pair that with the military's doing great, um, being a lean green fighting machine, um, we're gonna uh, raise the drawbridge, um, what you get is uh, then a military focused on adaptation rather than mitigation. In other words, the idea is that the United States needs to um, have a military that is prepared to deal with the threats to its own infrastructure and missions caused by climate change, but not so much focused on reducing its emissions. And then I want to make, I think, uh, a final point here. Um, what I'm what I'm seeing is a tension in the the, the peace movement, um, and even in, among colleagues that I I've known for decades, four decades, people are arguing that um, climate change is a national security issue and it's a security threat. And in, in arguing that, I think we're very close to validating um, arguments that will lead to increased budgets and fear, which is the great motivator for much of what we do. Um, so we were using the military to validate, some of us were using it to validate our concerns about climate change, but now, they're using climate change to, to validate, promote, um, legitimize the argument that um, they're the, the 
the best thing since sliced bread and they're going to help us through all of our troubles. So um, I just wanted to, to raise the, the um, issue that I'm, I'm having conversations with the colleagues I've known for a long time and suggesting we really ought to move away from that argument um, and think about instead problematizing the narrative that um, the instability, the immiseration that is occurring because of climate change will necessarily or likely lead to conflict. And the argument that was made in the, in the uh, national intelligence estimate last month and in the Department of Homeland Security and White House and DOD briefings that um, all of this is uh, uh, likely to be the, the, the instability that will be associated with climate change is likely to be taken advantage of by our quote adversaries, uh, Russia and China needs to be countered, nipped in the bud. It's uh, all part of a uh, sort of narrative that I think is distinctly unhelpful. Dr. Nita Crawford of Boston University and the Cost of War Project. Dr. Crawford was a guest on Code Pink Congress, held the first and third Tuesday of the month. Sign up at codepink.org backslash Congress. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio on WBAI-FM in New York and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Coming up next, Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans on the street heat outside the U.N. Climate Conference. But first... Save Our Planet Earth with Jamaican Jimmy Cliff. Save Our Planet Earth with Jimmy Cliff. COP26, like the other UN agreements, failed to mandate reporting of military carbon emissions. No surprise there, but awareness is growing in the street and in Congress that the Pentagon is the world's largest single consumer of oil, largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. Please take action. Join Code Pin Congress in asking your U.S. Senators to vote no on the NDAA, that's the National Defense Authorization Act, the $778 billion military budget due for a vote any day now. Think about this. Congress is poised to spend over the next decade $8 trillion on the military. We can't let that happen. Please urge your senators to vote no on the NDAA. 
Now back to Code Pink Congress for a report on the street heat outside the 26th UN Climate Conference, known as the Conference of the Parties or COP26. And now we're going to turn to Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans, who served in California Governor Jerry Brown's cabinet when he was in charge in California, and she led and worked on efforts to promote wind and solar energy. Uh, Jody has led citizen diplomacy for decades, delegations to Iran, the Gaza Strip, Afghanistan. She's published two books, one called titled Stop the Next War Now, Effective Responses to Terrorism, and Twilight of Empire. Jody Evans is a busy woman. She serves on several boards, including Bioneers, Institute for Policy Studies, Rainforest Action Network, and Drug Policy Alliance. She and Code Pink's Nancy Mancius, together with Susie Gilbert in Europe, traveled to Glasgow, Scotland, where they joined with thousands of other activists demanding climate justice for the global South and a focus on the link between militarism and climate chaos. Welcome, Jody. We want to hear all about your trip. Thanks, Marcy. Hi, everybody. Great to see you all this week. Um, so I'm coming from the occupied lands of the Tongva people. And first, I want to say what a rock star Nita is. Um, we rely on her deep research and our work to cut the Pentagon in war. But she's also fantastic in the streets. She joined us all day Friday at the Youth March after a night of no sleep coming to Glasgow and the next day at the People's March. And I have great photos of her carrying our war is not green banners. So thank you for that. And then just a deep thank you to Bernadette for how you offer your life to protect land and life and for your call to action and sharing your heart and wisdom that was deep and beautiful and, and, and just reminds me of like one of the most important things that COP26 was that, um, you know, we in the global north, we're talking about a future and we're doing this for a future, but this is now. And we felt that in Bernadette's story. And so for most people, it's not something that's coming. It's something that they're experiencing now. And, you know, as we see at Code Pink, it's the war economy, the extractive, destructive, oppressive economy. Um, and, and those were the people inside the blue zone in COP. Um, I've been attending COPs before there was a COP, way back to the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, which led to the forming of COP. And so in the arc of history, change is happening. And it's important we feel these victories in the face of just absolute failure. COP26 was a failure. It failed to value life on the planet and decided for greed and profits and corporations. It failed to hold the North responsible for all its consumption and fossil fuel usage that the people of the global South are already paying for with their lives. But a victory was the potent power of the indigenous voices telling their stories and getting inside and making those in the blue zone really uncomfortable. Um, the voices from the global South were loud, beautiful, clear, and brilliant, both inside and outside. And that's even with so many of them being kept out of Glasgow because of the vaccine apartheid. Um, you know, another part of all this greed. Another victory was the People's Tribunal, which was really powerful and beautiful. And you can, um, I'll put the link when I'm done talking, but it delivered its verdict of guilty and um, 
on all the charges and it called for COP to disband its current form and be reconstituted from the ground up as a means of redress, um, that it had formed as an intimate partnership with the very corporations that have created the climate crisis, and it had refused to democratize the process to listen to those on the front lines who bear the brunt of the crisis. Um, you know, one of the things that was really distressing is I, I did get inside the green zone and all you heard were corporations pronouncing that only corporations could solve this problem. So you just, the, the stupidity of the corporations continues and it was on steroids there. Um, one of the testifiers at the People's Right Funeral was Mitzi Jonel Tan, a young Filipino climate activist with Fridays for Future. And she said the youth felt a strong sense of betrayal from the world leaders as they go on with their empty promises and lies. Enough is enough, she said. The summit so far has done nothing but greenwashing. Um, and the, the tribunal did call for the trillions of dollars in tax havens to be expropriated to fund the climate transition. Another victory is that for years at Code Pink, um, we have been working to get emissions from military addressed in Paris, we refused all platforms, even on the outside. But in Glasgow, we had an entire day dedicated to the emissions. And um, we always had a designated place in the marches. Um, and by the way, um, Marcy, it wasn't thousands I was in the streets with. It was hundreds of thousands. It was at least 100,000, if not more. Um, we were um, we had at least one panel every day and the media picking up our story and sharing it. Um, Nita was on Democracy Now. Um, so I would say that's a huge movement in the last five years. And it's all of us raising our voices. And um, we got to see the fruits of our teachings um, because then other people in other conversations were bringing it into their their panels. And so it just started to move like wildfire through the communities. As we passed out our wars, not green stickers in the marches and rallies, asking people if they knew that militarism was the greatest industrial polluter, almost everyone said no, but they were happy to learn and they took the sticker to remind them to learn more. And stop the military boot print was tending, trending for days. And, and why a boot print and not a footprint? Because inside the blue zone, they were talking about footprints. But, you know, kind of as Nita was saying, it's like it's a boot print because it's not just the use of fossil fuels by the military. It's like all the ways that the military destroys and causes climate change. It, it's layered and it's mini. And so we call it the boot print. Um, also, Abby Martin, our friend of, uh, at Code Pink, is making a film about the cost of war to the planet. And she was able to get inside the blue zone and do interviews. But best of all, she was able to ask questions at the press conferences of both Democratic governors and Nancy Pelosi and her panel of members of Congress, who, which basically exposed them as ignorant on the issue. Um, and AOC was then able to take the other side, say she knew about it and um, that the military did need to be measured and took responsibility to teach her fellow members of Congress. So our team member, Nancy Pelosi, Nancy, not, not Pelosi, she would kill me if that I connected the two, um, Mancius, um, she's been running our BlackRock campaign. And for four years, she's been working on really educating the climate justice movement about the cost of war and has laid the groundwork for this inclusion in Glasgow. 
and Nancy was on all the organizing calls. So she organized a press conference for Thursday um, that was the day dedicated to militarism. She helped build a coalition for a huge march to BAE, the UK's largest weapons manufacturer, which included some of those amazing Samba drummers. I think we had like 50 Samba drummers who were drumming all the way, really inspiring. Uh, we went for miles down streets of Glasgow until we shut down the front of BAE and had a rally. And then it was followed by a teach-in that Nancy facilitated that began in steps where Sheila Biota from Micronesia, um, Climate Change Action um, and the Mariana Islands opened with a blow on her conch shell, uh, followed by activists from all the UK and US anti-war uh, organizations and ended with an Afghan refugee calling on the needs of the people in Afghanistan. Um, it was interspersed with great music from David Rovex, so it was a, a beautiful peace rally. And you can read more about our actions um, at, um, at Cut the Pentagon, and I'll, I'll put that in the chat in a minute. So core messages for you to take um, and make a part of your lives and conversations are um, one that went across all the organizing outside is that we need structure change, not climate change. And um, of course, the structure is held up by militarism. So yet another reason that it should be ended. Um, and the understanding that we know the cost of war to the planet, as does the military, as Nita was saying, and they, um, uh, Nick Buxton at Trans, uh, Continent, uh, Transnational Institute said, they're really gearing up right now for climate change to be the next reason for war. Like Nita was saying, this is something we need to be aware of and you know get in the front of. Um, and you know, one of the other things was is the seriousness of how much money of this militarism is being diverted to arming borders, um, and that's another place where it's being invested in. So I want to bring up another victory, which is for the last 18 months, our China is not our enemy campaign has been working to raise the alarm about US aggression on China. And instead, we need to call for cooperation on climate change. So just before Glasgow, after much, many months of outreach and research and um, work, we got 31 members of Congress to send a letter to Biden to cooperate with China on climate. And that really helped push so that one of the victories out of COP could be Kerry's announcement about cooperation with China that led to the meeting with Xi and Biden, which was a long, you know, something we thought impossible given all this um, uh, warmongering that Biden's been doing um, and the arming of Taiwan, et cetera. If you want to read more about that, follow us at China's Not Our Enemy. And then many of you um, have been helping pressure against the Eagle Act, and I want you to know it's stalled. So your calls and outreach are part of that victory. The bad part of that is they may still put the Innovation and Competition Act in the NDAA, but we're not gonna vote for it anyway. Um, the Innovation and Competition Act includes aggression on China in it, uh, which might be hard to do given what, you know, Biden trying to be in cooperation um, would just expose more of his um, duplicity um, because it actually just funds more military training in Taiwan and, and Hong Kong and more, um, uh, you know, uh, education in uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong that, you know, inserts U.S. Uh, story into both those places. So it's still meddling. Um, and then another victory is that we made cut the Pentagon global. 
Um, many of the organizations across the global south that we were talking to want to join in because they say cutting the Pentagon affects them. And so they want to be part of our big tent movement to cut the Pentagon. $22 billion was spent on militarism during the war on terror and 1 billion tons of fossil fuel was used. So that has already caused some 270,000 climate deaths across the globe. Mil uh, militarism is turbocharging the climate crisis and we at Code Pink will continue to expose and call for the reduction of the military blueprint as we call for the cutting of the Pentagon. So there's two bills to pay attention to. Um, one is Barbara Lee's bill that we've had for a while, our Cut the Pentagon um, project is, is pushing that and that's to cut the Pentagon by $350 um, billion. Um, and it's very clear and it's what it should be. And you know, one of the things that has been mentioned a lot where we can cut emissions is cutting all these bases we have uh, around the globe. And that's definitely part of it. But then um, with Nita's help, um, Congresswoman Lee was able to introduce a new piece of legislation on the tail of COP and that's to demand accountability of um, the greenhouse gas emissions by the US military. And so we have to get behind that. And you know what we do know is the US military is destroying indigenous lands all around um, uh, Asia in this aggression towards China. And we have to be able to stop that also. So, um, you know, no more blah, blah, blah. We need action. And um, we'll give you lots of ways to engage on that as we continue post COP26. Thank you so much, eloquently stated. Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. You talked about Barbara Lee's latest House resolution and Jim Ryan of Veterans for Peace is with us now just to give us a, a quick update on that, the number of co-sponsors and so forth. Uh, we do ask that you stay. Uh, we will have a Q&A. We wanna ask all of our guests, our honored guests questions and dialogue with them. And then we will go to our action portion, our capital calling party. And we're gonna be talking about legislation and asking our senators and our house reps to co-sponsor legislation to protect the land of the Gwich'in and to co-sponsor Barbara Lee's resolution and to vote no on the NDAA. With that, Jim Ryan, Veterans for Peace. Uh, thank you, Marcy. Uh, first, let me say that uh, the resolution that I'm gonna be reporting on is designed to, or hopefully will impress upon the American people, the impact of the US military on our environment and climate change. This is a sense of the Congress the resolution uh, which is now known as HRES 767, or expressing the sense of the House of the Representatives that is the duty of the Department of Defense to reduce an overall, the overall environmental impact of all military activities and emissions and for other purposes is a resolution. It doesn't really have any legal impact, but as Nita Crawford pointed out uh, to me uh, and some other uh, folks that there is already the law of the land in the, even though the National Defense Authorization Act has many nasty things in it, in the one for fiscal year 2021, it actually makes it a demand that the Department of Defense has to report its emissions. So this resolution is sort of in a supporting role for that. Now, how did this resolution come about? Well, in the spring of 2021, 
it was became began as a combined project of Veterans for Peace and the Climate uh, Crisis and Militarism Project in Code Pink, uh, with the action items largely derived from the Conflict and Environment Observatory, otherwise known as CEOPS. In July of this year, we met with uh, uh, Robert, uh, uh, Representative Barbara Lee's staff, and we asked if she would be the lead sponsor, and she soon agreed thereafter. Thank you, Jim. I think one of the strengths of this resolution is that it asks for accountability on uh, all military operations and breaks them down on, you know, bases, as Jody mentioned, and uh, proxy wars, drone attacks, troop deployments. So uh, it, it forces people to look at what we're doing. Uh, I wanted to properly introduce Jim now that he's already spoken. He's an adjunct professor in the Department of Environmental Science. He's a retired research geologist. He teaches geology at Wayne State University. He's a member, as he mentioned, of the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project. Uh, he's a Vietnam-era vet who joined Veterans for Peace in 2005 while living in Houston, Texas, and prior to returning to his hometown of Detroit in 2016. He spearheaded BFP's work with Congresswoman Barbara Lee's office, as you just heard him explain. So thank you so much, Jim, for that. Now I want to give our participants some time. Hania and I will be looking at the chat, and Shay is helping us grab some of the questions from the chat for our honored guests, Bernadette Nantef uh, in Fort, Fort Yukon, Alaska, on the indigenous Gwich'in Nation and their, the challenges they face with the climate crisis. Professor Nita Crawford of Boston University, Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. So uh, I'd like to start off, I'll ask the first question, then we'll take some questions from the chat. Uh, Bernadette, can you share with us any of the tactics or approaches, strategies that the Gwich'in Nation has adopted to advance your concerns about protecting your ancestral lands? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we actually went to banks um, in New York. We went there and um, uh, many of them um, vowed not to do any Arctic um, refuge to fund any Arctic refuge activity. We also went to oil and gas company shareholder meetings, which was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but um, you have to have the hard conversations. Um, we also held our very first Arctic Indigenous Climate Summit in Fort Yukon um, two years ago. And um, one of our elders from um, Canada came down on a boat. It's like a 12 hour boat ride. And he told us, you know, enough with the gathering, enough with the meetings. It's, it's time to start getting active. You need to, um, his name is Stephen Frost. And he said that, you know, it's time that we start doing something because meetings are not going to stop <laughs> the climate change. And um, just sharing, you know, sharing our story and sharing what we're going through. Um, I believe that your voice is one of the most powerful tools that you have, that you have to use it. So um, we're just, we're not giving up, you know, it's not an option for us. In terms of the military, uh, which elements of the military are the worst emitters, you know, and that sure. we get first? Yeah, so um, the division is 
30% of emissions come from bases, installations, and you know, there's the 750 overseas and the bases in the US. And the DOD already says about 20% of those is that's excess. They, they don't need all of that. They're acknowledging that. And then the 70% uh, remaining, the, the vast majority of that is uh, operational and that's aircraft emissions, you know, from helicopters to bombers to transports. And um, uh, much of that, uh, you know, you're talking gallons per mile efficiency levels, not miles per gallon. So uh, really jet fuel is the, the big user, um, the big emitter. Bernadette Dimientev, Executive Director of the Gwich'in Steering Committee, representing the Gwich'in Nation in Alaska and Canada. Before that, Boston University Professor Dr. Nita Crawford and Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans, all special guests on Code Pink Congress. Join us the first and third Tuesday of each month. Sign up at codepink.org backslash Congress. Now for Code Pink Action Alerts. Here's what you can do. First, tell your U.S. Senators to vote no on the NDAA. That's the National Defense Authorization Act, the military budget. Ask your Senators to stand with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who has announced, and that's very important that he has announced beforehand, to encourage others that he will be voting against this runaway military budget. Next, please ask your Senators to co-sponsor S-282, S-282, to protect the Arctic refuge, Gwich'in land from oil and gas drilling, and ask your representative in the House to co-sponsor Barbara Lee's HRES 767, that's HRES 767, for Pentagon accountability on greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Marcy Winograd, inviting you to sign up at CodePink.org and join us for Code Pink Congress again the first and third Tuesday of the month. You've been listening to Code Pink Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, and WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. Stay safe and work for peace and climate justice. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know